we realized right up front is that we needed to have a culture of autonomy and accountability. And those are the uh, uh, kind of the key uh, watchwords that we use as we talk to new soldiers coming into the unit. And what we have learned um, is that great power competition requires long-term competition below the threshold of conflict in the contact layer, meaning those states, nations, partners, where that competition is most acute. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and this episode features a conversation I got the chance to record with Colonel Kurt Taylor. He is the commander of the 5th Security Force Assistance Brigade, or SVAB. That is the final of five active duty SVABs that the Army has stood up. It was formally activated quite recently in May, but he took command a year ago, which means he has a really interesting perspective on everything that goes into creating such a unique unit. We talk about that process and about how to recruit and select officers and NCOs for the SVABs. We also discuss the role of the advising mission in an era of great power competition. And Colonel Taylor makes a pretty compelling case that that mission is especially important in that context. Before we get to the conversation, really quickly, I have just a couple notes. First, if you aren't subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, literally anywhere you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, we would love it if you could take just a moment and give the podcast a rating or leave a review. And lastly, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Colonel Kurt Taylor. Colonel Taylor, thanks so much for joining this episode of the MWI podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So you are the currently the commander of the 5th SFAB, 5th Security Force Assistance Brigade, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today is, is the SFABs and their role in the in the contemporary security environment. Um, but kind of to, to begin, I wonder if you can give listeners a little bit about your background prior to taking command uh, of the SFAB. Oh, sure. Um, so uh, an SFAB is a second command, um, and we did that deliberately, and that kind of applies um, throughout the different echelons. So you command a company in the SFAB after you commanded one in the conventional force, a battalion, and a brigade, and so forth. So I had the opportunity um, to uh, command uh, the 1st Brigade of the 4th Infantry Division, a striker brigade, um, back in 2018, and um, actually took it through a pretty interesting um, period of its history where we uh, reorganized it to fight as a reconnaissance and security uh, BCT as we're exploring different ways to build uh, armored cavalry regiments in the Army. Um, after that, I served as a uh, division chief of staff um, and then uh, uh, came here uh, with the SFAB. Um, as a battalion commander, I had the opportunity to um, serve in Afghanistan um, in uh, Paktika province, where, of course, building capacity with the Afghan army was, uh, was pretty uh, s- central to what we did. And then uh, prior to that, served as a uh, uh, as a S3 and uh, a brigade S3 and a battalion S3 uh, in Iraq, um, and also serving in a um, counterinsurgency and capacity building role there um, with uh, with our partners there in Iraq. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about recruitment and and selection for the SVABs, and as part of that, I'm I'm going to I think want to ask you kind of what drew you to the SVABs. But before we get into that, I want to ask kind of a as a framing question. You know, the Army is in. Uh, and 
and has been for the past few years, kind of this period of transition, modernization, um, sort of a reorientation towards readiness for large-scale combat operations um, in an era of great power competition. The SVABs, in a lot of ways, at least maybe superficially, kind of seem to be an outlier uh, when you look at it kind of through that lens. How do SVABs fit into you know, the things that the army is going to have to do in this era, again, of great power competition. Yeah, I, I would, uh, if you'll forgive me, I would disagree with your premise on that. I, I think we are part and parcel to the army's transition to, uh, to great power competition. And we've done this before. Uh, we did this in the cold war. We did this extensively in the 19th century, uh, and 20th century. And, um, uh, and what we have learned, um, is that great power competition requires, long-term competition below the threshold of conflict in the contact layer, meaning those states, nations, partners, where that competition is most acute. Uh, and, and you don't win the Cold War just by defending the Folded Gap. Defending the Folded Gap is important, but you win it by engaging in every country where that competition is ongoing. And so to do that, you have to have forces that are organized and postured to provide persistent presence in that contact layer and to do it in a way that's valuable to your partner. And that's why the demand we're seeing from combatant commanders is not necessarily um, for uh, for carrier battle groups, uh, carrier strike groups, sorry, for uh, BCTs and for air wings. The demand we're seeing from our, our combatant commanders is for this advisory capability. And so what the Army chose to do is it moved from a period of persistent counterinsurgency, a period of great power competition, is to reorganize the Army to meet the demands of its customers, those combatant commanders. Um, and by creating permanent professional advisor capability that has recent uh, uh, warfighting experience across all the warfighting functions in the Army, uh, you create that persistent capability to engage uh, in great power competition. So we see this as an essential part of the Army's transition to great power competition. You know, a lot of the sort of commentary about the SVABs is sort of centers on how we've done advising over the past nearly two decades in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, I wonder though, if, if would you, would you say that that, that is the wrong paradigm through which to understand the SVABs because it isn't necessarily to do the sort of advising that we do in a counterinsurgency context better, but it really, we should be thinking more in terms of how they contribute to the fights going forward in operational environments well beyond places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the most recent current uh, contemporary model for the employment of SFABs has been in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, and they've been very successful there. Um, first, second, and third SFAB have demonstrated uh, the value of investing in, you know, a professional advisor uh, capability. Um, but that doesn't mean that's all they can do. Uh, and what we are seeing now with um, uh, now first SFABs employment in South America uh, their earlier missions into the African uh, continent, and then our uh, upcoming missions in the Pacific, is if you want to build lasting relationships with partners, uh, if you want to build trust with partners that, that comes from that persistent presence, uh, you have to organize your formations to do that. Um, and uh, and SFABs give us the capability uh, to do that by taking what we do best, um, which is building a, you know, what we arguably do better than any other nation in the world is building a professional uh, NCO core and applying those very great uh, NCOs. And uh, over time, 
to help um, build partnerships um, with these critical uh, nations that are in the contact layer of competition. So you are the uh, commander of the fifth SFAB, which is the fifth and final active duty SFAB. There's another uh, National Guard one. Um, is is five the right number in your opinion and in your sort of experience so far? Well, if you if your goal is to go to regional alignment, absolutely. I mean, it, it makes sense. So uh, the plan right now is that uh, uh, first we'll align against South America, second we'll uh, align eventually uh, against Africa, uh, third with CENTCOM, uh, fourth with Europe, and uh, fifth with the Indo-PACOM region. Um, and so that makes sense. Uh, it partners based on where each one of those um, SFABs are currently based. It, it uh, co-locates them with uh, a number of institutions, for example, first SFAB is at Fort Benning and we'll be partnered there with, with WinSec. Uh, fourth SFAB at Carson will be right there co-located with, um, with 10th SF Group. And of course, it makes a lot of sense for us uh, here at uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord with First Corps and with First SF Group uh, to partner with them as well. So the number five makes a lot of sense when you consider this as a regional alignment. Uh, and then uh, 54th, uh, which you alluded to earlier, which is the SFAB, uh, in the National Guard, uh, will be supporting all five of those regional uh, COCOMs uh, as they provide uh, essentially surge capacity um, for uh, missions uh, across all five brigades. And so what does that look like practically? You kind of described the um, the virtue of, of having SFABs located in particular places um, based on that alignment. But for your in your case, for instance, 5th SFAB, what will that partnership, that alignment against kind of the Indo-PACOM AOR look like? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that question. So the, the rough model uh, is that uh, you take the brigade essentially divide it in thirds and rotate one third of the brigade forward into the contact layer on a six month rotating basis. So that preserves the two one dwell uh, that the, uh, the chief staff of the army has asked us to maintain. So a soldier who serves 36 months in the SFAB will essentially spend two years of that time in a training status and one year forward deployed, broken up over two six-month deployments. So it's six months uh, forward, 12 months back, and then you rotate among three different task forces um, that, uh, uh, that follow that, uh, that mission cycle. Now, that, that's the model, and, and of course, uh, the needs of our partners and, and the requirements that we have in theater will adjust that model. Um, but uh, but that, that generally is what it is. It means we will have about one third of the brigade forward deployed. More importantly, what that gives us is the capability to maintain a persistent presence. Um, so like in, uh, in Thailand, we have a long history of conducting exercises uh, in partnership with, um, uh, with the Royal Thai Army. Uh, they've been excellent. And uh, the typical model is we come in, we have a big ceremony, we, uh, we conduct some joint exercises, we have a ceremony a few weeks later and, and, uh, and everybody goes back to their home, home base. Uh, and we do that year in, year out. We've done it for many, many years, have a great relationship with them. Uh, while that's great for, uh, for kind of these high visibility events, it doesn't do a whole lot for building capacity and building long-term capability. And so what we are planning to do uh, as early as next month is to employ uh, our teams forward into their artillery academy, their cavalry school, their infantry school uh, to help really, uh, as they ask for our help, um, to help them build uh, some institutional uh, capability in their formation so they can build a, kind of a TRADOC-like capability, um, and uh, we can assist with that. And we can sustain that 
that presence uh, in, an, in an enduring way, really, as long as they uh, will have us there. So, you know, I, I, I'm really glad that we were having a chance to talk um, specifically because for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, URSFAB uh, is is the newest. Uh, and I think that there that offers an opportunity to talk about kind of, um, like I said, recruitment and selection and and how you stand up a new unit like this. But also because, because you're going to be aligned um, at some point in the future, specifically against Indopaycom, you know, Indopaycom has been kind of um, the center of gravity for the multi-domain task force, the place where we're kind of stress testing the Army's operating concept of the future. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how maybe you envision the SVAB sort of nesting within uh, what the multi-domain task force is working on. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, General Eisenhower and I, you know, we're, we're neighbors. We, uh, we, we've known each other for 30 years uh, and uh, um, spent a lot of time talking to one another here. He's the commander of the multi-domain task force about how we can um, uh, build uh, some synergy between our capabilities. What I think we will do is provide placement and access for the multi-domain task force um, and a situational understanding that uh, uh, that far exceeds what we have today. Uh, and this will be built over a matter of time uh, that will enable us to be forward inside the A2AD contact layer, inside the, the area denial bubble um, and provide special access that can be uh, that can be heavily exploited by the MDTF should conflict arise. And so, uh, so that's one of the big things we're looking at. We, there's a lot of partnership um, that uh, um, uh, that we think is really valuable. There's a lot of our allies are very interested in MDTF capabilities and, uh, and how we can preserve access to locations um, inside a, uh, an A2AD threat. Uh, and, and we think that our presence forward makes a big difference. Let me give you a historical example. So when uh, the Russians invaded uh, Georgia um, in uh, 2008, the nation of Georgia, um, the, uh, uh, there just coincidentally happened to be an advisor team from um, uh, JMRC, the Joint Multinational Readiness Center, that was in Tbilisi at the time. Uh, they were conducting a routine advisory mission, uh, helping to build capacity uh, with the Georgian army at the time of the invasion. Uh, those advisors, although they were not equipped for the mission, they had not trained for the mission, they were not prepared for the mission, uh, they were great professional soldiers. They got on the roof of their uh, uh, their hotel uh, there in uh, Tbilisi and were able to provide uh, current real information about what was going on in that conflict layer because they had placement and access prior to the conflict. Uh, they provided tremendous insight to, um, uh, to the combatant commander about what the capability and the disposition of the Georgian army was as they mobilized to defeat this attack. You can see that kind of capability being really valuable in an age of great power competition. Uh, and so that's something we want to make sure that 5th SFAB uh, is well trained on. The ability to transition from uh, from competition to crisis to conflict uh, in a seamless way. We think that our placement will give us a, a tremendous advantage um, should conflict arise. You mentioned uh, Thailand as an example within within the Indo-PACOM AOR um, of a country that that you know you'll be working with. How much of this is how how much of a demand signal is there from 
partners and how much of it is driven from us you know and i'm i'm not suggesting that we're you know going in and saying hey you need our help with things but how much of it is kind of being pushed from us and how much of it is really a, you know a signal of, of of an existing demand from from countries that realize that hey this can be a a benefit to us yeah the the demand signal is is fairly significant, um, and uh, now COVID has changed has has attenuated that in some degree, and we're we're working our way through that. Um, just as countries are concerned about being supportive of their own governments who have imposed travel restrictions and and uh, have concerns about foreigners coming into the country, um, so we're working through that. But but uh, absent the the current uh, challenge of the uh, of the pandemic, the demand is is very significant, and what what our partners are looking for is a, uh, uh, they're looking for a partner. They recognize it's a dangerous world. Uh, they don't necessarily uh, want, to, want to be um, explicitly aligned against a particular adversary in the region, um, uh, be it Russia or China. Um, but they, uh, they want to make sure that they have a, a reliable partner that preserves their sovereignty. And that's one of the big selling points we, we have out there. Our, our goal as the, uh, COCOM commander has said, is we want a free and open uh, Indo-Pacific. Uh, and so everything we talk about is we want, uh, we want open dialogue. Uh, we want to do things that reduce their dependence on external powers uh, that generate independence and sovereignty. Um, and I think as, uh, as our partners in, in the region look to their alternatives um, to, a, uh, um, to a U.S. partner, uh, that's certainly not the uh, the direction that China wants them to go, or uh, or even Russia. And so we think we've got a real value proposition for our partners, and they recognize that. And so we've had a number of them uh, reaching out to us um, uh, who are very interested uh, in this uh, capability. What we what we have to be careful of uh, also is that we're not perceived as um, uh, this is the start of some kind of patron client relationship. Um, and and uh, uh, you know. Advisors are not about, and this is a point I have to make to our partners a lot, it's, it's not about uh, reconstructing failed armies and failed states. Uh, that, that's not what we are here to do. The point I make a, an awful lot with our partners is, hey, we have advisors too in the U.S. Army. We call them uh, observer controllers. And every time we send a uh, brigade combat team to, uh, um, to one of our combat training centers, uh, they're partnered with a professional advisor. Um, the OCs. And so uh, we are just offering that same capability to their army that we have in our own. Um, and and uh, once you explain it that way, and you also explain it in the context of building interoperability between our two nations, uh, then uh, we found enormous uh, support for this idea. That's a really good point about OCTs. I want to sort of uh, shift gears a little bit to um, kind of a, a question of personnel. You know, the army within, especially recently within the sort of talent management context, uh, has focused, has, has, has utilized a framework um, composed of, they, they say, knowledge, skills, and behaviors. And these are the types of attributes uh, of individual service members that should sort of inform decisions about aligning talent uh, against organizational needs. I wonder if you can kind of um, Maybe paint a picture of, of the types of NCOs and officers uh, that the SVABs need in order to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so getting the people right is the most important part of the SVABs mission set. Our, our equipment set is, is relatively light. We've got some pretty 
exquisite communication gear, but we basically have Humvees um, and a pretty light um, equipment footprint. Uh, and so the people are our pacers, um, just to use a, a military term here. It, it's the quality of the people we bring into this organization that drives everything about our capability. And so we spend an awful lot of time making sure we get that right. The first and most important thing about uh, that makes SFEBs unique is you have to be a volunteer. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the Human Resources Command will not send anyone to an SFEB. Uh, the only way to join an SFEB is to explicitly raise your hand and say, hey, I'm interested in being part of this program and to volunteer for it. Uh, once you do, then you start an interview process that if you successfully uh, pass through that, uh, then we kind of get uh, um, the, uh, the first right of refusal uh, to hire you into the formation. Um, and so, uh, so that has changed the way I do everything in the brigade. That's probably the biggest difference between the way I've, I've had to lead this brigade versus uh, the, uh, the brigade I came from in a striker formation uh, is that people are an absolutely critical asset and we spend an enormous amount of time recruiting, uh, interviewing, uh, and uh, evaluating potential recruits before we bring them into the brigade. We have a centralized program at the um, Security Force Assistance Command level uh, that runs an assessment selection program uh, and that's for all of our um, basically uh, uh, staff sergeants, sergeants, and pre, uh, pre-command captains. Um, those three groups uh, have to go through that uh, assessment selection process. And that's uh, really a, uh, a three-day exercise. It's run out of Fort Bragg. Recently, we've been doing it uh, virtually, uh, but it involves a, uh, a, a series of uh, uh, MOS skill tests. Um, so basically, do you know your profession? Um, a, uh, an interview process uh, with a board of uh, senior uh, SFAB leaders, uh, and then um, some pretty demanding um, physical standards. Uh, you've got to take a, a PT test and pass with a 240 or higher with a, with a uh, 70 in each event. Uh, and then uh, you have to compete in a, uh, or you have to participate uh, in, you know, a ruck march and an obstacle course. What we really use the ruck march and obstacle course for is an opportunity to see how you work with your peers. Uh, and then at the end of that course, uh, you conduct a, uh, a peer assessment. Uh, and then based on the experience that you and your squad has had the last three days together, uh, a determination is made on whether or not you're the kind of guy we're looking for in the SFAB. What are we looking for? We're looking for folks who are masters of their warfighting MOS. So, and this is an important point I just want to make. The number one thing we recruit for at an SFAB is do you know how to fight at echelon for your MOS? So if you're a if you're an E6 infantryman, we're going to look at uh, your experience as an infantry squad leader. If you're a captain, we're going to look a post command captain. We're going to look at your experience as a company commander, um, because what our partners are looking for is people with recent warfighting experience. So folks who've got combat experience or recent CTC experience at echelon, that's really what we're looking for. If you are a logistician, we want to know, you know, have you, have you managed supply chains in, in a combat environment or, or in a, you know, simulated combat environment? Do you have that kind of experience? Do you understand, if you're an engineer, do you understand how to build an engagement area? That's the number one thing we're recruiting for. Then after that, we look at, are you a good team player? Can you operate in a small team? Are you humble enough uh, that, uh, you know, you, you would be fine, uh, you know, cutting the grass on a, on a 12-man team or doing what needed to be done as part of a 12-man team 
that has no privates in it. I mean, it, you know, everyone's got to do their own heavy lifting. Um, can you operate in that kind of social dynamic? Uh, and then finally, uh, do you have the, uh, the humility and uh, the social empathy uh, to be okay uh, to be behind the scenes, to never get the credit uh, for what you do, and to make sure that your success is only seen through the success of your partner? And really, once we find those three criteria, um, then we're going we're gonna to take you onto our team. It's been a lot of learning for me over the last year just to realize how hard it is to, uh, to find that kind of talent across the formation. But as you build a brigade that consists of people who, who consistently have that talent, uh, what you end up with is a, uh, a dynamic team, um, a team dynamic that's, uh, that's better than any I've ever seen in my career. And so uh, I think morale in the FEBs is, is pretty high. Uh, certainly is in, in ours as people really enjoy the folks that we've recruited to work with and they enjoy the mission and they enjoy the opportunity in front of them. There is, um, as I understand it, there's an uh, essentially an interview process with the chain of command at the, um, for lack of a better term, hiring SFAB, which is a pretty fundamentally unique uh, feature, not something that you probably would have had you know, you would have experienced to nearly the same degree when you commanded the previous the conventional brigade that you did. Uh, how important is that to the recruitment and selection process to you? Uh, it's, it's hugely important. Um, it does a couple things. One, uh, I didn't realize uh, how much, uh, honestly, I took people for granted as a BCT commander. Uh, now, we cared about people. We invested in our people. But People was a problem that the Army was going to solve for me. And honestly, if you weren't uh, happy about your service in the brigade, you could leave the brigade. This is when I commanded a striker brigade. And the Army would find someone else to replace you with. Um, that dynamic is fundamentally different in an SVAB. If, uh, if I am not making good on the value proposition that I make to my soldiers in this brigade, uh, and that is that I'll invest in you, I'll give you an exciting mission, I'll uh, um, allow you to continue to grow as a professional, if I'm not good on that, then you're going to go and tell all your friends um, that uh, that this was a bad decision and uh, our brigade will not be able to recruit the talent it needs for the next generation. So the structure of this organization demands that we um, continue to build, uh, that, that we continue to invest in our in our soldiers um, and make good on the on the contract we've made with them. And that's a little different than it was in, in a uh, in a BCT. Um, and so, uh, in that interview process, you kind of build a contract of, Hey, this is, uh, if you come to the brigade, uh, these are the kinds of things we would, uh, uh, we'd see you doing, uh, this is how we would invest in you and then return you back to the force, uh, as a professional that can go on to lead, um, at a higher level in the conventional force. So one of the big commitments I make to all the NCOs that come here is, look, if you come here as a staff sergeant, you've completed your squad leader time in a BCT. Uh, you, you serve three years here, uh, pretty good chance based on our hiring criteria that during those three years, you're likely going to get promoted to sergeant first class. Uh, and my goal uh, as your commander is that when you go back to your uh, to a conventional force battalion three years from now as a, as a brand new sergeant first class, that you're the best platoon sergeant in your battalion. Or if you're a first sergeant, you're the best first sergeant in your brigade. And I think we owe it to these guys um, and gals who make this commitment to uh, to try something different. Um, to be a part of, uh, you know, the forward edge of our great power competition, um, to make sure that they remain highly competitive. Um, and we do that by investing in them and building uh, kind of a mastery of the fundamentals 
in our in our training glide path. And that's a different mindset than I uh, necessarily had in a BCT. Um, and I think it's it's helpful. It's made me a better leader. So you took command uh, of the SFAB last year in 2019. It uh, was, I guess, officially activated uh, just, I think, six, eight weeks ago in May of this year. Clearly, spending time on getting the right people into the organization was a big part of what you were doing over that over that intervening, you know, twelve month period. But what else? What else goes into standing up a unique unit like this? Well, it's harder than than it looks, uh, and I've, I've I've learned that just building anything new in the army is is difficult. And so um, uh, we did a lot of looking at um, you know, kind of how do you build a startup. Um, how do you build institutions? How do you create culture from scratch? Um, and uh, I was fortunate that uh, the uh, battalion commanders and, and CSMs arrived um, pretty much the same time I did, so summer of last year. And so we had this board of directors um, uh, really from the start that we could start to shape the organization with building relationships on the installation um, was absolutely important. Uh, because of the way we built the SFABs, you know, all of our talent came from uh, organizations uh, that are already standing. And, of course, that, that required some delicate negotiation, as you can imagine. Uh, as soldiers volunteered, the, uh, the units they were departing, um, you know, obviously uh, wanted, wanted to make sure we, they came to us at the right time. And so there was a lot of negotiation that went on that. So, so building good relationships with our partners here at JBLM um, and across the Army was hugely important. Uh, just talking about our capability uh, was important because a lot of people uh, just didn't know what an SFAB was all about, had a lot of misconceptions. Uh, and then uh, especially as we were diverted from the Afghanistan mission to uh, the Indo-Pacific regional alignment, um, we, we really needed to make the case of why that is still relevant, why that's important and, in fact, very important to our future. Um, and so we were doing a lot of that. The other thing we invested a lot in over the last year was really building a mastery of the fundamentals of warfighting. And so, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the last five years of the military, we've invested an awful lot of organizational energy in building capability at the brigade and battalion level. We've done that through a lot of CTC rotations and, uh, and I think have, have made significant progress uh, in building proficiency of brigades and battalions to operate uh, in conflict. What we've lost in that, um, and I'm just echoing se senior leaders that I've heard, uh, what we've lost in that is, is some degree of proficiency at the, at the platoon uh, and company level. Uh, and you see that in, uh, in marksmanship. You see that in uh, our ability to, to master our communication systems. Uh, you see that in some of our sustainment functions. And so what we've been able to do is really build that, uh, work to build that mastery back in. So I'll give you an example. Uh, the first rifle range we ran uh, in the brigade lasted two weeks. Uh, we brought in the Army Marksmanship Unit. We brought in the 75th Rangers, and we taught the fundamentals of good marksmanship to all of our non-commissioned officers and then had them spend two weeks on the range um, firing thousands of rounds of ammunition to really build that mastery. And a lot of these guys were, you know, medics, combat medics, uh, 92 Yankees, so uh, supply clerks. Um, 35 uh, Foxes, which is an Intel specialist, uh, out there shooting thousands of rounds and really mastering uh, the, uh, the fundamentals of uh, being able to, to operate their weapon systems. Um, now, my hope is that as we continue to invest in these NCOs, 
that 35 Fox is one day going to go back and become a, a Myco first sergeant, uh, MI company first sergeant. And he'll be a much better trainer because of the time he spent in the SFIT. That 68 whiskey is going to go eventually be a leader in the, in the Charlie Med, may run the ambulance section of Charlie Med of a BCT. And because of their time spent on the range with us, will understand how to train their soldiers on the proper handling of their weapons. Um, we've done that in the, in Camo as well. We've done that in logistics. And so because we have the time and resources to do that, we can invest more in the fundamentals of warfighting than I think I had the opportunity to do, uh, in a, in a BCT where you're so consumed with, um, uh, with unscheduled maintenance, um, with frankly, some of it, uh, dealing with soldier issues, uh, and, uh, with last minute taskings. And so being isolated from those three, um, constraints on your time has enabled us to um, to really get after uh, mastery of the fundamentals and hopefully build a much more capable um, cadre of NCOs who will lead the next generation of our conventional forces. You know, each of the sort of various communities within the Army, um, be it functional uh, or unit-based, what have you, kind of has its own unique cultural characteristics. I wonder how important you think it is that the SFABs kind of develop a unique culture associated with their function of advising and whether or not you're seeing signs of that sort of uh, building already, even though they're, they're still so young. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a great point. And, and, you know, again, we spent a lot of time looking at culture um, because uh, you know, you typically in an army unit, you come into an organization, you inherit the culture you assess it uh, where it is, uh, and then you slowly sleep, seek to uh, uh, to adjust it to a new reality or or, um, or to protect it uh, in many cases. And so um, uh, it, it has been a new experience for me um, to uh, to start with a blank slate and what kind of culture do we want this organization to have? What we realized right up front is that we needed to have a culture of autonomy and accountability. And those are the... Uh, uh, kind of the key uh, watchwords that we use as we talk to new soldiers coming into the unit is uh, if you're a sergeant in an SFAB, you're, you're not going to get a set of instructions each day that tell you what to do uh, because there's no way I can provide that to you when you're you're on month four of your tour in Thailand at the Artillery uh, Academy or, or you're serving in Indonesia or you're on the island of Fiji. I, I can't provide you those day-to-day instructions. I can't tell you what you should be doing. I probably can't really offer you too much of a critique on the plan that you send me uh, because you understand the context better than I do. And so if we don't have a culture in our organization where where non-commissioned officers feel empowered to make pretty broad decisions uh, about how they're going to employ and get after some pretty ambiguous uh, guidance, uh, then we're not going to succeed with the mission we have. Um, and so uh, we spend a lot of time talking about that autonomy and what that means um, and, uh, and how we expect, uh, you know, we, just as a simple matter of garrison operations, we conduct um, leader training time once a week. And, and we expect that to be um, ruthlessly enforced and, uh, because it's, it's part of our mastery of the fundamentals. Um, but designing and building that is a responsibility of non-commissioned officers. And, and they've got to look at what's, what's required of them. And, uh, and develop uh, plans that are appropriate to that without necessarily being instructed um, on a day-to-day basis on what they're going to do. So that autonomy is, is important. And it's really liberating for our top performers. They love it. They love uh, being trusted uh, to, uh, to develop 
their own way to solve problems. Now, with that comes accountability. Uh, what that means is I hold you accountable for results, uh, not necessarily for um, uh, just, you know, rote, uh, showing up at work on time and, and doing what you're told, but I hold you accountable for the results that you produce. Um, and so uh, yeah, that's really the culture that we are trying, uh, that we are working to build in the organization, one of autonomy and accountability. Um, the other one is a, a culture of kind of a self-policing ethic. So there is no way I could structure a set of rules uh, that would appropriately manage a advisor team's conduct on a Friday night in Bangkok. Um, I, I, I cannot come up with the rules that would, that would appropriately constrain their behavior. What I can teach is the 11 uh, advisor attributes that General Milley uh, came up with when, when he first created the, uh, um, uh, the SFABs. Uh, and they include things like uh, empathy and discipline uh, and being a great ambassador to the, uh, for the United States. And so my policy is whatever you do on a Friday night in Bangkok, you better uh, adhere to the 11 advisor attributes. Uh, and, uh, and that's a different way to frame the problem set is that I hold you responsible for an ethic uh, and for the execution of that ethic both on and off duty when, re when you're representing America in a foreign country. Um, and I'm going to trust you to do that. And so, you know, the first time you have that kind of trust can't be the day you get off the airplane. Um, uh, we've got to build that in everything we do here in Garrison. And so we're really trying to create a culture uh, that's founded on, uh, on some ethical principles uh, and some principles of conduct and, and a self-policing environment uh, more so than just uh, compliance with a bunch of rules. I want to kind of shift gears a little bit, and I'm not going to ask you to speak for any other uh, SFAB leaders at the brigade level or at the battalion level, but um, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting choice to make to go take a second command uh, in a context like this. And so, I wonder if you can kind of maybe shed a little bit of light on that by um, just explaining a little bit what what drew you to the SFAB. What what you know, at what point did you kind of look at it and say, hey, when I'm done commanding this BCT, maybe I want to go over there and and kind of do it again, albeit in a very different fashion. Yeah. I was in my last couple months of BCT command, right? As, uh, General Jackson and his team were standing up. And so a number of my soldiers, uh, mostly uh, company commanders, um, were, um, were asked to volunteer for the SFAB and then participated in that first deployment um, as uh, subsequent to their service with me. So I went to another two years. Uh, I attended a course in England for a while, and then I was a chief staff of 1st Infantry Division uh, in the interim between BCT Command and SFAB Command. So during that time, I had an opportunity to hear their experience. Um, and uh, I was really intrigued by this concept of, of autonomy and accountability. Um, and I, I really started to see uh, that... Uh, um, you know, if, if you love investing in people, if you love making a difference in the lives of people, I've never seen an organization that's better structured to enable you to do that uh, than the SFAB. It is a people-centric organization. And I know we all say that. Every, every one of us would, would argue that we uh, live in a people-centric organization. But our mission set is such that the most valuable thing I have is the individual advisor. Um, and so, uh, and you've given an enormous amount of resources and talent to really build that capability. So if you if you really love investing in people and you think that the, you know, the, the only thing that's going to be left in your career when, when the Army marches you off a parade field one day will be the investment you make 
in those you've had the opportunity to lead. And I can't think of a job uh, that's that's better that you could be doing in the Army than serving in, a, in an SFA. Uh, I volunteered uh, because uh, the opportunity to command soldiers again, uh, I found to be um, really inspiring. Uh, the opportunity to invest in folks and then uh, um, finally, um, I, I really, based on my service in Afghanistan, um, I, I really learned that uh, it is the effect we have on our partners uh, that will have the greatest strategic impact uh, in the future, um, uh, more so than anything else we can do. And, uh, and that happens um, through long-term persistent advising. And I think we've finally built an organization that is uniquely equipped to do that. As we sort of, um, I think, near wrapping up here, uh, I want to ask kind of a, a, a big kind of horizon gazing question. What does success for an SFAB look like over the, say, you know, five to 10 year time horizon look like? Yeah. Um, so, so let me just step one, uh, one step back uh, on that. If you, if you want to compete uh, against an adversary over an extended period of time, uh, the key to doing that is to understand asymmetries, right? To understand what is your adversary naturally good at uh, that, you, that you lack a natural uh, competency and, and then vice versa. Where, where do you have asymmetric strengths? And where adversaries have done that to us, we've obviously struggled. Uh, and where we have uh, uh, appropriately applied asymmetries and the Cold War is a classic example, um, we have been successful. And so if we are entering a period of long-term strategic competition against China in the Indo-Pacific, it's important for us to ask, what are we inherently better at uh, than uh, the Chinese? And, and it's not necessarily technology. I mean, the, the Chinese have, uh, they've got the capability to produce te technology at a, at a pretty astounding rate. Uh, it's not economics. They have the capability, they have a, a, a growing uh economic capability and, and clearly demonstrated the ability to use that uh, as a lever of, uh, of influence in the Pacific. What we do better than any nation on earth, arguably, is build alliances. No, no nation in the history of the world has built more enduring alliances and, and partnerships in the United States. Uh, and we also have the best NCO core in the world, uh, hands down. And so if you recognize those as two of America's greatest strengths, then an asymmetric competition uh, against uh, or with uh, China um, for uh, the uh, uh, the support uh, and uh, and the uh, uh, to to preserve a free and open Pacific um, would center on the building of long term alliances and the application of our professional NCO core as a tool of international diplomacy. Um, I think the SFABs are uniquely designed and built to do exactly that. Uh, and so what I would see us in five to 10 years uh, would be a rotating force of uh, about uh, 20 advisor teams in the Pacific at all times, um, operating in persistent contact, helping to build capability uh, in places like Indonesia, in Fiji, in Timor-Leste, Papua New Guinea, Malaysia, um, uh, Thailand, Taiwan, uh, Philippines, uh, and helping uh, each one of those militaries to the extent that they desire our help um, to build the integration of warfighting capability at the brigade and battalion level. And so, uh, for example, I, the Philippines are interested in, in uh, integrating their 
uh, warfighting functions uh, into uh, organized modular brigade combat teams. That's a capability that the SFABs can help them with. Um, operating, you know, helping the uh, uh, the ties build a doctrine that fits their uh, their defense strategy. Uh, working with uh, the Fijians as they seek uh, to continue to participate in UN um, peacekeeping missions uh, worldwide. Um, and our goal then is that as we as we show them the capability of our NCO Corps, we show them the professionalism of our military, that we remain the partner of choice in a dangerous world. Um, and uh, and that's a slightly different mission than just purely building their capacity, but, but that they uh, have a sense that they are better off strategically if they choose the U.S. as their partner of choice uh, rather than another partner, that they're more sovereign, they're more self-reliant, um, and they're more able to participate in a community of equal nations uh, than if they had partnered with, um, uh, with any one of our competitors. I think that's a really good uh, point to kind of end on and paints a pretty pretty good picture of what, like I said, what success looks like for an SFAB uh, in the in the years to come. So Colonel Taylor, I want to thank you again for taking some time and, and chatting with me. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way for us to stay in contact with the incredible community of listeners and readers who share our interest in topics related to modern war. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.